Light a campfire and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats. Hello and welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasha and today I'm speaking to John Course, Managing Director of Serengeti Ballooning Safaris. John, thank you so much for coming on to chat to us today about hot air ballooning in the Serengeti, something that I firmly believe is something that everybody should do at least once in their lifetime. I quite agree. Uh, it's, it's an absolutely extraordinary experience to have. Well, fantastic. I really hope that our conversation today helps to persuade more people of that. Yeah, me too. Before we start talking about ballooning, I'd just like to you know, get a little bit of an intro to you and who you are. As the Managing Director of Serengeti Ballooning Safaris, can you tell us a little bit about your background? You know, I, I believe that you were born um, in Kenya, then, then went off to the UK and came back. What is it that drew you back to East Africa and in particular to the tourism industry and ballooning? It wasn't by design. Uh, actually, unfortunately, my eldest sister uh, died uh, in, in uh, Tanzania uh, when I was in the UK, and she had just started uh, a tourism business in the Salu Game Reserve, as it was then, uh, with, a, with a Kenyan business partner. And when I came out uh, after she died, I had a, a, an epiphanal moment, and I decided that I had to stop what I was doing in the UK come back to Tanzania, carry on doing what she was doing. And so I did that, and uh, I've never looked back. Um, I'm really sorry to hear that there was such a sad story behind it, but what an amazing legacy to build. Yeah, and she's, she, she's left a huge legacy, and, uh, and it's always been part of what I've been doing ever since. So uh, I'm very proud of that and of her. I can tell that, that, that you absolutely love what you do, and I think it really comes from the heart, so that makes such a huge difference in everything, always. It does. I think... Those of us who work in the tourism business, you know, we, we're in it for a, for a, a depth and a love of what we do. And, and it, uh, it makes a huge difference. And I've done other things. And, and when you're not quite so proud of the product or service that you provide, you feel it. So uh, I think that's what draws a lot of us back to tourism, uh, being proud of what we do. And I think more importantly, your guests feel it as well, if your heart isn't in what you're providing. And that's definitely something that stands out for me with Serengeti Ballooning Company is how committed and how joyful all of your staff are. It, it, it's a great privilege to provide a once-in-a-lifetime experience for people. And uh, it, it's also a responsibility. If, if we only have one shot, one chance, because people are only going to do this once in their lives, it is a huge responsibility and we, we all know that and we all know we have to do our absolute best every time to make sure we leave a memory with people that is, that is quite extraordinary. And um, I believe the Serengeti Ballooning Company, it's also quite an, quite an old company, I think about 30 years or so, if I'm correct. And you were the first company to do ballooning over the Serengeti. That is correct. Uh, there are two now elderly English gentlemen who started the company and one was a balloon pilot. He was one of the early pilots for governors ballooning in the Maasai Mara in the 80s. And the other was a camp manager for different companies, but including Serena and others in the 70s and 80s in Kenya. And they got together. I think they were introduced to each other somewhere along the line. And they both had entrepreneurial spirit and an idea to set up uh, hot air ballooning in Tanzania or Zambia. And they ended up choosing Serengeti uh, because of the extraordinary vistas, as well as the volume of people that, that might be coming there, even 
in the 80s as it was then. And it was an enormous uphill task to persuade Tanzania National Parks, the conservation community, and the Tanzania Civil Aviation Authority that, that hot air ballooning uh, was something that would be worthwhile uh, for all of them to get behind and, and, uh, and to pursue. And, and it took three or four years before they were able to fly their first balloon. But uh, the industry hasn't looked back since. And, and often Serengeti and, and a hot air balloon over the Serengeti have become synonymous with each other. Absolutely. It's certainly an iconic image, I think. Mm. Now, when we were chatting briefly before, you know, before we started the podcast, you said something to me that only 10 people out of every 100 that go to the Serengeti actually experience the hot air ballooning. And I just, I find it incredible to believe that based on what a fantastic experience it is. Um, can you speak a little bit about, you know, what makes ballooning over the Serengeti in particular such a unique option, considering that there are so many different ways to explore this reserve? Yes, it's, it, there's a number of facets to it. But just the first thing is, is floating in a hot air balloon anywhere is an extraordinary experience. I, I have quite a strong aviation background and I was in airlines before. And I couldn't tell you how different it is between you know, flying an Airbus or, or flying a balloon and the experience of being in a balloon. If you haven't done it, it's hard to understand that feeling of being in the open air with a, a little gentle zephyr of a breeze on your face, but being able to sit, sorry, stand in the basket look over the edge and see these extraordinary views below you. So anywhere in the world, it's an amazing experience. But in Serengeti, firstly, we have generally extremely reliable weather. So where you might be having to run through one, two, three, or four cancellations before you actually get your balloon flight in Europe or maybe in America, just due to weather, in Serengeti, it's extremely reliable. So we cancel flights due to weather about 20 to 25 days a year. Every other day, we're able to fly, which is, which is a fantastic reliability score to start with. But then you've got this one of the most famous national parks in the world. And to be able to see it from a hot air balloon with a flight that's as reliable uh, as the weather allows us to be is, is an opportunity you just shouldn't miss. And people... I, I, I'm sort of slightly sad that people spend most of their time in a, in a car when they're on safari. And of course, it is the way to see the most game in the shortest amount of time. I appreciate that. But it can get a little bit samey after a while sitting in a car looking out the window or looking out the hatch or looking out from an open vehicle. And, and although it's a lovely experience, you, it becomes a little bit samey. So to be able to add some variety to the safari itinerary, I think it's really important whether it's walking or in a hot air balloon, it, it makes a massive difference to somebody's experience and, and adds a great breadth to it. But also from a balloon, you get to see areas that you would never see from the ground, simply because of the shape of the ground, the dead ground that we can see into from, from above. But also Serengeti, and it's a wonderful thing, it's very strict about off-road driving. So there is no off-road driving. And therefore, you, you, your game viewing is done from the established roads and tracks. Whereas in a balloon, you're above it all and you're therefore flying over areas that you'd never ever see from a car. But also this is one of the beauties of it. In other wildlife viewing areas, 
where off-road driving is allowed, one of the things you see from a balloon is countless car tracks everywhere. And it just slightly dents that feeling of wonderful nature that you get. And that's where another reason why we're so lucky in the Serengeti. In between the roads, there are no car tracks at all. And that really adds to the, to the experience that you feel when you're, when you're floating over the Serengeti. Absolutely. I can agree with you on that. And all those wildlife trails that you see just crisscrossing, it just, uh, I think it brings it home as well, the wealth of the wildlife that the Serengeti actually has when you just see that from above, undisturbed. It's very true. Uh, it, it, it really is. And, and some of the sort of little sneaky views that you get, and quite often we see serval cats or bat-eared foxes or some of those little uh, smaller animals that, that you're less likely to see from a car too. And, and that's a really wonderful experience. And, you know, you go past a clump of grass and suddenly behind it, there is, is a serval cat and it's lovely. Also, you know, along the Grumeti River, I mean, those, um, those colobus monkeys, I've seen them from, from the hot air balloon in a way that I've never been able to see them from the ground. So it really is quite amazing to get those little insights that you wouldn't usually get. Yes, and I, I think you're dead right. It's some of those little experiences, those you feel slightly privileged to get them, and uh, they definitely add to the, add to the, the mystique of a balloon safari. So um, can you describe for our listeners just what, what would a typical hot air ballooning experience be? What could travelers expect to, to experience? How does it work? Uh, what can they expect to see? Um, just, you know, sort of describe, describe what it would be like. Yep, absolutely. Well, the first thing is it involves a very early start. And I can't sugarcoat that. You've just got to get up early if you're into ballooning. But I find that apart from the fact that African dawns are so glorious, also getting up early is only painful for a few seconds. And once you're up, it's fine. So the first thing is we have to get you out of bed early uh, in your camp or lodge. And then we'll, we'll collect you in one of our cars and we'll drive through the night to whichever launch site we'll be taking you to. And that depends on the time of year and it depends on the location of the camp that you're in. But uh, one of the things about Serengeti is that uh, there is no night driving allowed. Uh, and this is really for security and safety reasons. But uh, the hot air balloon companies have a special dispensation because we have to fly very early in the morning. So when you take a balloon safari, the first thing is you get that bonus night drive that you weren't supposed to have. Uh, and that's rather fun. And we get quite a lot of interesting sights to see. I mean, we can't linger for long because it is important for us to be at the launch site on time. Uh, so it, it's, uh, you get some really lovely things to see, whether it's a pod of hippo out on uh, enjoying the, the end of their nighttime grazing or maybe some hyenas tootling along the road, or uh, something more exciting like a leopard or, or lion, uh, though not, not to do the hyenas down. Um, so, yeah, first thing is you get a night drive. Then you'll arrive just as the dawn is beginning to break. You'll arrive at the launch site, and you'll see this huge shape of the balloon in the darkness as the crew are preparing it. And uh, maybe you'll see the flame of the pilot uh, testing all his burners before, before we start. You'll arrive at your balloon. We'll give you a, a cup of hot spicy tea or coffee and a cookie just to wake you up ready for your experience. And then when he's ready, the pilot will call you over 
and he'll give you a full safety briefing to prepare you for the flights and explain exactly how everything's going to work. Uh, you'll put your seat, your safety belts on. And this is a point worth noting. We were the very first ballooning company in the world and for many years, the only one that would make everybody wear a safety belt. And it, it doesn't restrict you. It's just that it's a, it's a webbing belt that goes around your waist with a clasp exactly like an airline belt, but it's got a steel ring on it. And when you get into the balloon, you'll attach that to a strap from the floor, which means you can stand up and move around in the basket, but, but you can't jump out. So um, no parachuting uh, from balloons over Serengeti. But it does make people feel a lot safer. And of course, it is very much safer. And that is particularly useful for people who might be afraid of heights. Quite often, people say, oh, I'd love to do a hot air balloon over Serengeti. It sounds amazing, but my husband's afraid of heights, so I'm not sure if we're going to do it. And that's where we can say, well, you know, please think about this safety belt system that we have because it's totally secure. And it really does make a difference uh, as to how people feel. So once you've got your safety belts on and uh, at, had it explained how to use them and had your safety briefing from the pilot, you'll step away from the, the balloon while the crew complete the cold air inflation. So we use big, powerful petrol fans to blow cold air into the balloon to give it a nice big round shape uh, and, and prepare it for the hot air inflation. At, at that point, then, we'll call everybody in the balloon and this is if you've done ballooning before this is another difference with us we actually ask all our guests to embark in the balloon when it's on its side and this is unusual but it's much safer this way because the basket isn't going to move at all it's on its side also you don't have to climb up the 1.5 meters that you would otherwise have to do to get over the side of the wicker basket to climb in which a lot of people find difficult you can actually slot yourself in from the side and, and we have plenty of ground crew available to help you in. So uh, for that reason, it's also much easier to, to climb in. Once you're in and you're seated, you're sort of sat, but on your back. We call it the astronaut position. If you imagine an astronaut uh, about to take off in his rocket, that's how you are sat, uh, but with your back uh, horizontal, uh, parallel with the ground. You attach your safety belt, and then the pilot will begin the hot air inflation. And that's when, however chilly you might have been, you realize why it's called hot air ballooning. You'll feel the heat of the burners as they blast the, the, the hot air into the envelope and it starts to, to gain buoyancy and rise and it'll pull the balloon upright. And then uh, once he's got everything set up and ready to go and tested all his systems, it'll be time to cast off from the anchor. All the balloons are anchored to a vehicle uh, as a safety measure. And once they're ready to take off, we release the anchor and away they go. So, you're still sitting down, but now you're upright. You can't see out of the basket uh, because you're sat down. And there's been a lot of movement as, as the basket comes upright and you're getting ready to take off. And then sometimes you don't even notice it. It's kind of all gone quiet, smooth. And then the pilot will say, it's time to stand up. And you stand up and you see the horizon. You see the sun rising over the Serengeti Plains and you realize you're in the air. And it's an incredible moment to have. And from there... You'll turn around and you'll see the grass of Serengeti or the, or the river or wherever you're flying, uh, in whichever part of Serengeti you're flying in, you'll start moving over it. And unlike scenic balloon rides, we fly mostly low. 
within a, within a few meters of the ground, give or take trees, wildlife, etc. But generally quite low because mostly we're looking to see wildlife. We will also climb higher uh, at various moments during the flight to see the views. But we find that our guests um, are generally much, you know, much more interested in the lower flying where where they can seek out the wildlife and the flowers and the plants and the and the birds as we fly along. And we'll, we have 16 people generally in our baskets on, on a shared basis. And everyone will be contributing. Somebody on one side sees something and they'll tell those on the other side and the pilot maybe will turn the balloon round so that everyone gets a good look at whatever they're seeing at that time. And we fly for around an hour. And we don't have a huge amount of control over the direction that we're flying in because we have to fly with the wind. But what we do know in our 30 years of experience is that uh, there are different wind currents at different altitudes. And, and we know to a greater or lesser degree how they're going to be. So the pilots will climb and descend the balloon to try and catch the wind currents to influence the direction they want to go in to get the best wildlife viewing possible in that hour's flight. Um, and we will be turning the balloon around as we fly so everyone gets a different view. There's no, there's no first class in a balloon. Everyone gets an equal amount of time flying at the front, as it were. And uh, after about an hour, it'll be time to land. And the pilot will get everyone to sit down in the landing position uh, and hold on. It is Luckily, it's the same as the launching position, so everyone has tried it out before. And then it'll be time to land. Now, landing a balloon is, uh, is a tricky but also fun moment because balloons don't have wheels. And so we have to slow the balloon down. And, and the good pilots what, like ours, what they'll do is they'll bring the balloon very low. So actually, the grass, you'll feel the balloon scraping across the grass, and the grass slows the balloon down uh, a little bit. And then it'll be time to land. And the pilot will call the landing. He can usually count out to it that they have enough experience to be able to do that. And you'll brace yourself and the balloon will touch the ground. It, it'll bounce one or two times. Uh, if the wind is above about 15 kilometers an hour, it will then drag for a while across the grass as it slows down and then gently tip over and stop. And uh, that we call a drag landing. It's lots of fun. Uh, and it's probably the majority of the time. So you'll end up with the basket on its side again. Once the basket has completely stopped and the balloon has deflated, it'll be time for the pilot to let everybody climb out. And the first thing we have to do then is celebrate the flight. So it's traditional in ballooning to celebrate the flight with a glass of champagne. And I could tell you in detail the story of exactly why it is, but I'd kind of quite like you to come and fly with us. Okay. And then we'll tell you the full story. Fair enough. But suffice to say, it dates back to the very first manned, manned flight of any kind outside the Palace of Versailles in France in the mid to late 18th century. And it's a lovely story, and our pilots will tell that story and then use that opportunity not only to celebrate the flight, but to celebrate anything else that we can think of that needs celebrating at the time, whether it's birthdays or anniversaries or honeymoons or engagements. Um, so that's a lovely moment, just in the, in the middle of Serengeti, next to the balloon, 
we'll celebrate the flight with champagne and uh, for those who prefer with some juice, but we also mix the two and call it a Serengeti sunrise. Um, and non-alcoholic uh, champagne is also available for those who prefer. And that takes maybe 20 minutes or so. And once we're done, we'll pop into the cars and drive a short distance to where we will have set up a full bush breakfast. So the balloon experience is not yet over. One of the things I really like us to do is, is a completely wild bush breakfast. And we don't even know where it's going to be until the first balloon has taken off. So one of the jobs of the lead pilot is to establish the wind direction for the day and user's experience to tell the ground crew where would be the best place to set up breakfast somewhere near where we land. And that's when the crew will go out and they'll set up the tables and chairs in the kitchen and everything. So from our guest's perspective, they'll arrive at an acacia tree somewhere in the middle of Serengeti and there will be tables laid uh, with full crockery, cutlery, more champagne, tea, coffee, fruit juice, freshly baked bread rolls, and fresh Tanzanian fruit will be served at the table. And then we'll offer people an option of either a full English cooked breakfast of eggs, bacon, sausage, tomato, mushrooms, baked beans, fried potatoes, or uh, what I call a more modern breakfast uh, for those who prefer of smashed avocado on rye toast with spicy chickpeas uh, as an alternative. And everybody will be sat on tables and enjoy reminiscing about the flight and, and, and comparing their experiences uh, and enjoying a lovely breakfast under a tree with the animals, those that might be around, doing their normal thing uh, around them. And we're then finished by about 9.45, and it'll be time to hop into the car, and we'll reunite everybody with their safari guide so they can continue with their morning. So by 10 a.m., we are, we're done, and everybody will be off on the next adventure. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really easy to plan it around any other activities you might have for the day as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it really, it's, it's such a dramatic experience. I find that, you know, as you said, you get quite busy during, during the takeoff and that, and all of a sudden um, you get up and you look around and then this, there's this absolute moment of silence and just this amazing beauty. It really is something extraordinary to experience. Yes, it, it is. And it's so different to all other safari experiences. That's why I feel it's such a wonderful compliment to the rest of your safari. Now, John, what parts of the Serengeti do you offer ballooning in? And are there specific times of year that you're active in, in specific areas? Yes. To start with, in central Serengeti, we, are, we operate throughout the year. But Serengeti is also famous for the wildebeest migration, which spends the year migrating around Serengeti. It's always in one part or another, but we adjust our operations to, to coincide with it. It doesn't mean we can guarantee that you'll always be flying over migration, but at least we can give ourselves the best chance of doing so. So from uh, around the middle of May to the end of October, we will also fly in the western corridor of, of Serengeti in the Grumeti area, flying down the Grumeti River and taking advantage of the migration when it comes through, hopefully May-June time. And then in June, we will open in North Serengeti, uh, where we fly down the Mara River. And we'll, we'll be open in, in North Serengeti from June 
actually all the way through to January. But the wildebeest migration will normally be there from late June, early July through to around October or November. So you'll have some absolutely glorious flights along the Mara River, uh, seeing to the north into the Maasai Mara itself and to the uh, west, uh, east and south, uh, Serengeti National Park itself. And then we stay open even after the wildebeest migration has left because there are some permanent camps and lodges up there and uh, people quite often like to spend some time up there out of its own season uh, for a quieter safari experience. But then by December, the wildebeest will be back through central Serengeti and heading to south Serengeti. So from mid-December, we will start flying over the short grass plains, the, the famous Serengeti plains of South Serengeti and Ngorongoro Conservation Area. And that is based around an area called Ndutu, where there are normally lots of mobile camps. And we fly there through the Christmas period, through the carving season of, of February, and then we finish flying there in about March. So we have... Uh, these seasonal bases to give ourselves the best opportunity to see wildebeest migration. And then also we fly in Ruaha National Park in southern Tanzania, and that's from, uh, from June through to October for the dry season. But in Serengeti, we can also fly out of season if, if people have a particular group or a trip, but minimum number of people do apply, but we can be flexible uh, as much as possible uh, uh, to fly out of season for bigger groups. Yeah, I think you're a little bit like our Serengeti under canvas camps that also try to move around with the migration, but, you know, flexible enough to do to do anything. Exactly. I can only imagine what it must be like to fly over the herds of, of the great migration. It, it must be an amazing experience. Are there challenges that, that come with that as well? I mean, how do you find a place to land when you've got these huge herds of wildebeest all, all around? <laughs> Is that one of the challenges that you have to deal with? <laughs> It, it it can be, um, particularly in in North Serengeti, July, August, September, or in the short grass plains, uh, December, January, February, March. You can be flying over this enormous biomass of of antelope uh, and wildebeest and and uh, eland and all the other attendant animals uh, and and the sights and smells and sounds that all go with it. It it, it can be. Uh, not overwhelming, but certainly a real feast for the senses. But when it comes to land, we, we, we've been doing this for so many years. We know all the good places to land and, and how to affect them. And even with wildebeest, though they see us throughout the year, wherever they are, they do move out the way when, when, it, come, when it comes to flying low and coming into land. So, so um, we, we always find a nice patch of grass to land on. Yeah, I can. Um, I think one of the things that struck me the most about witnessing the Great Migration was, as you said, the noise of the herds and and the noise of this amount of animals. And I can imagine it must be really incredible to float over them and actually just hear everything as well as seeing it. You're absolutely right, and that's one of the things that strikes me so often when I'm flying in a balloon is is the sounds. Sound seems to travel upwards almost more than it does uh, I travel horizontally. And even if you're floating over a piece of empty grass, you can hear the birds in the grass singing or the 
clicking hooves of an eland. The, the, some of the extraordinary sounds you hear are just magic, and they're so different to everything else you experience on a, on a safari that uh, it's something that always strikes me about flying a balloon. John, I've been lucky enough to meet one, of, one or two of your balloon pilots, and it's very obvious that you know they, there's a great deal of skill there that comes in, not just in terms of flying, but also, you know, their knowledge of the wildlife, their hospitality skills, the way that they pull everything together. But, you know, I believe that there is actually formal training that they go through for the ballooning. Can you talk a little bit about that, about, about the kind of training that they, that they receive and the kind of process that you go through with them? Yes, I mean, a balloon pilot is a, is a commercial pilot regulated by the, the Civil Aviation Authority of the country that they're flying in. So uh, we, are, we are technically an airline and we're heavily regulated by our civil aviation authority. So for, to become a balloon pilot, you, you'll have to go off and, and do your training and start with a private pilot's license training. And we will send our pilots, we, we have a training program for Tanzanian pilots, and um, we'll send them overseas for their private pilot's training. And, and Actually, the UK Civil Aviation Authority has the most stringent private pilot license exam. So we like our pilots to, to go off and do the UK CAA one, but the weather in the UK is not very conducive to getting enough hours to get your license in a reasonable period of time. So luckily, there's a flying school in Italy that flies, uh, that trains pilots to the UK CAA standards. And then we have to fly an examiner from the UK to Italy to conduct the exam. But we think it's worthwhile doing because it is the best by a long way. It's the toughest private pilot's exam. So most of our pilots, uh, whether they are uh, international pilots or whether they're Tanzanian pilots, they, they have got the UK CAA private pilot's license behind them. Then they need to go and build hours. Uh, and in order to do that, usually America is the most cost-effective place to do that. They can go and fly in, in the sort of western side of America, California, et cetera, uh, where we have some ex-pilots of ours who are trainers, and we'll quite often connect them up, and they'll go and fly over the Napa Valley or something for, for six months or so, building hours and building experience. And they'll end up with a, a, a Federal Aviation Administration commercial license. Once they've got that, they'll, they'll be able to come back to Tanzania and they have to do some conversion exams and a flight test. Tanzania very recently had appointed our chief pilot as Tanzania's first ever flight test examiner, uh, which we've never had before in ballooning. So Captain Abed uh, is now Tanzania's uh, only flight test examiner. So he examines every incoming balloon pilot uh, who comes to Tanzania. But they're not ready to fly our guests yet by any means. So we'll normally spend at least six months uh, with, with our trainee pilots, flying with our senior pilots uh, uh, together, building up experience, building up experience until they're ready to fly. The thing with, with hot air balloons is it's all speed, time, distance, judgment. It needs real good experience. And, and funnily enough, coming from... A commercial airline from Airbus pilots, as I did, which which is all extremely procedure based, uh, with all, for all the right reasons. But it's it's very much a procedure based skill to go across to balloon flying, which is so much a, a, a raw a raw speed time distance judgment uh, skill. They're very very different. 
and and that has to be built up uh, with lots and lots of experience before you can become a good balloon pilot. Now, your equipment as well. I mean, you mentioned some of the safety measures that you had in place and that you were the first to introduce seat belts. But um, can you tell us a little bit about the actual equipment, the balloons and the baskets that you utilize? And what is what is so special about the equipment that you use? What makes it stand out as being the best? Well, as one of the, the most experienced um, commercial ballooning companies in the world, we've flown Uh, 250,000 people in our balloons to date. We have worked with the manufacturers uh, for for a long time, helping to develop and and improve all the component parts of of a balloon. So a balloon is effectively three major parts. You've got the big balloony bit, which is what we call the envelope, uh, made of fabric mostly. And then you have the burner, which is a, a burning liquid, petroleum gas uh, of various different mixtures. And then you have the basket or gondola, which is still very much traditionally made with wicker and leather. So the three different components uh, obviously all have their part to play. And we work with the two of the best manufacturers in the world and have done for many years. One is called Cameron Balloons in Bristol. I think it's the oldest balloon manufacturer in the world. And the other one is called Ultra Magic which is based in, uh, in northern Spain, uh, just outside Barcelona. And so we work with them improving various aspects of the balloon. So, for example, when we started doing, uh, having safety belts, we had to get them to change the design of the basket so that we would have 16 strong points to, to put the safety belts in. And then they have to be certified by the Civil Aviation Authority. So there's quite a process that needs to be gone through. And then because we land... Uh, uh, on the plains of Serengeti, the balloons have got to be able to withstand those landings day after day. So we helped develop how the skids, we have big stainless steel skids with wood backing to them uh, so that the balloon can skid smoothly across the grass before it comes to a halt um, and how to reinforce and, uh, uh, them. Then, you know, we're worried about, you know, acacia branches and things like that. So we have Lexan, which is a bulletproof material, then added to the backs of the cushions so that they are, are you know, as safe as we can possibly make them. So these are all little developments that we've made over the years. And then we worked with a company that does uh, the heating of tires for Formula One to create heating blankets for our gas so that we can get it up to the optimal temperature and pressure for, for, for our operations. And so um, that was another development that we worked on. So each of our gas tanks has a, a heating jacket uh, uh, around it that, that gets up to the 150 psi that we need for our for our gas to be at ready for a, for a good cold morning takeoff. So there's a great deal of technology and a great deal of specialized design that goes into all of that. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so we've spoken a, a bit about your pilots and also about the equipment that you use, but obviously there's also a huge logistical operation that goes into it. I mean, you've spoken a little bit about the teams going out to set up the breakfast, but you know, having experienced this myself, it's quite a dramatic spectacle that the whole setting up of the balloon and everything going on around it. And your teams are so smooth and so great at directing attention in all the right places and actually making it very romantic for the guests. What really goes on behind the scenes, you know, all the prep that happens before the balloon takes off, you know, 
um, once it's in the air and once it's landed, there's, there must be a huge operation that goes into that. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yep, it starts with early mornings. Mm, uh, very. It's not just guests who have to get up early, but the team is up very early too. So all our drivers who go from our bases, they're up at 3 a.m., some of them, to be able to drive out and collect all our guests from all the different camps or lodges. They have to be really good at navigating Serengeti in the dark. And that's a skill that, that takes a bit of acquisition because it's one thing getting lost in the day, but at night, just with your headlights and absolutely no other light around you at all, uh, it, it takes a little bit of experience to get, get that right. But then also our ground crew, they, they'll have prepared the balloon the day before, so, so the balloons will be refueled, cleaned, checked over, everything ready, and then they're put to bed in, the, in our balloon hangars and connected up to the electricity. So then at 3 a.m., somebody goes and turns on all of the heating blankets so that they get one hour of heating to, to warm the gas up and get it up to pressure. Before 4 a.m., then uh, the balloons on their trailers are connected up to the trucks and they're driven off with the ground crew to the launch site. The ground crew gets out to the launch site. They pull the, the envelope off, pull it out, stretch it out into its balloon shape, uh, but flat on the ground. And then this basket, which weighs a ton, has to be pulled off the, off the trailer, placed on the ground, put on its side, connected up to the, all the wires that come from the, from the, the balloon, uh, the envelope itself. And then we have these petrol-powered fans that they'll use to blow open the balloon. And that gets it nicely open so that from the inside you can check all the, the control lines and the parachute, which is the part of the balloon that, that helps it deflate at the end of the flight all gets connected up properly. And all of that has to happen before guests arrive. So it's all done in the dark. And then when guests arrive, the, the, the balloon will be gently deflating again, uh, ready for the safety briefing and the pilots check everything over. And as soon as the balloon's taken off, half the ground crew then go off and help the waiters set up breakfast. And the other half of the ground crew will then follow the balloon in, in our trucks and trailers so that after the balloon lands, they can start packing it all up again and, and taking it taking it back to the base, get it refueled, checked over, and put back to bed in its hangar. So, yes, there's a, there's a whole system that we have in, in getting everything ready again for the next day. How many balloons in total do you have in your fleet? That's a bit of a moving number. We have approximately 10. We actually have 11 at the moment, but they, they retire fairly quickly. We have a strict company rule that by 900 hours, all our balloons are retired. Even though their, their lifespan may go on over well over a thousand hours, we, we have quite a strong safety margin. So nothing goes beyond 900 hours. And so within three years, we can have a balloon go from brand new to retirement. So therefore, every year we're buying new balloons and every year we're retiring balloons. That's a very quick turnover. And, um, you know, say in peak season, how many balloons would you, for example, have going up on any given morning? Do you, you know, do more than one at a time? How does that work? Across Tanzania, this coming peak season, we may get up to 10 balloons flying in different areas, but 10 in total. So there would be one in Ruaha and then nine around the Serengeti ecosystem uh, uh, in different parts. But in the same area, we might have four or five balloons taking off at one time. Uh, in the in the really really high season, 
At times like now, we have just one balloon flying each day. Tell me a little bit more about Ruaha. What made you decide to diversify particularly to that that part of Tanzania? And, um, you know, what makes it a great destination for ballooning or, you know, even an outstanding destination for safaris in general? Well, I love Ruaha. I've visited it for so many years uh, from when I used to live in southern Tanzania and when I was involved in tourism in, in Salu Game Reserve. Ruaha was the hardly next door. It's an hour away by plane, but it's part of the same circuit. And it's just beautiful and so different to the typical East African uh, uh, landscape of, of the Serengeti Mara ecosystem uh, or, or Samburu or, or Amboseli or Tarangiri. Uh, it's, it's more like some of the Southern African parks. It's full of baobab trees and pebbly hillsides and the great Luaha River that runs along it. And so it's, it's a really special destination, particularly for those who might have been on safari in South Africa or East Africa before and they want to try something different. They don't sort of need to see such a, a great number of, you know, big five or a number of different animals in a short period of time. They're ready to go in a bit deeper and get a little bit more of a deeper experience of safari and wildlife viewing. And Ruaha is so good for that. It's, it's not a really a business decision because there are so few people that visit Ruaha, but it's just beautiful. And I thought we've got to be able to put something together for this. And so we've got just one small balloon. It, it, it doesn't fly very often, but everything's got to start somewhere. And we know from our experience how many years it took to really establish ballooning in Serengeti. You know, it was more than 10 years before before people started to take notice of it. And so, you know, we play the long game and Ruaha will slowly build, but it's a super park. I really, really like it. So uh, I just feel we've got to do this. And, and the flight's very different. It's less windy than Serengeti, so you can fly quite slowly. And therefore, you know, I have some wonderful memories from before COVID when we were flying there, you know, hanging two, 300 feet above a herd of elephant who were mooching around eating in a palm thicket and they had no idea we were there. And we were just leaning over the basket and watching them from above and just glorious experiences like that, that, uh, that really stay with you. And so, you know, Ruaha, I'm determined to make a go of it. Amazing. It, it sounds absolutely beautiful. And I really wish you the best of luck there. I mean, you, you mentioned the herd of elephants, but you must have had very, very many amazing experiences while ballooning. Are there any other ones that particularly stand out to you that you'd really like to share? I think flying over the wildebeest migration in North Serengeti is incredible. You've got the Mara River and, and lots of little uh, wooded valleys that, uh, that, that lead into the Mara River interspersed with grassland and rocks. And when that's full of wildebeest and you're flying gently over the top, it's an extraordinary experience. Also, flying over the short grass plains when they are full of animals is incredible. And, and as I mentioned before, it's an absolute feast of the senses because the smells, the sounds, the sights, it's all happening right there underneath you. But then I still remember a few months ago flying in central Serengeti and we were pretty low to the ground and we weren't seeing much at the time. And then round the side of a, of a grass thicket, uh, there is a fabulous looking serval cat. And, and that was completely unexpected. We both kind of looked at each other and blinked and it was, it's a really lovely experience. 
I, I really think that's part of it. It's the it's the suddenness and the unexpectedness of some of the sites that you come across that are just that you really would not see from any other perspective. Yeah, absolutely true. John, so if somebody would like to book a ballooning safari with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Is it best for them to go through the property where they're staying or um, should they contact you directly? What is the easiest way to, to actually book? I think that the best way is when you're, when you're thinking about your safari and you're planning it with your, with your Africa specialist safari agent, that's, that's the time to do it because it, it it's best to get it weaved into your itinerary at the appropriate moment. And, and I say to people, try in Serengeti, try and book your ballooning for the first or second morning that you're there in Serengeti. So that firstly, if we have to cancel for whatever reason, we've got a chance to fly you the next day because you're still there. But also if you're anything like me, I like to know kind of where I am in space. I like to know the geography around me. So if I've been up in a balloon early in my safari, I've seen it all. Then when I'm on the ground, I kind of know where I am. And so that, that works well. And we can get quite booked up in, in the peak season. So if you leave it to the last minute, you may be disappointed, uh, which would be a terrible shame. So I really recommend when you're planning your safari, do it at that point and book it through your agent so that everything is in place and ready to go when you, when you arrive in the country. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. I think that's that's it. But you've really painted a very vivid and beautiful picture. So I can only encourage anybody who's even remotely thinking about it, just go ahead and try it. You will not regret it. You will never regret it. It's such a magical experience. Fantastic. John, thank you again very much. It was lovely to chat to you. Thank you, Kathia. Thank you for listening to Leave Our World a Better Place. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find out more about And Beyond, please log on to our website at andbeyond.com.